following announcement has been paid for by the WZWA Network. Hi, everybody. This is former WWE superstar Al Snow. And- CWN is Sean Oliver. My name is Eugene. And you are watching the Insider's Edge podcast. Now get on the train. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show here on the WZWA Network. I am your host with the most on the West Coast, California in Fury, and it is great to be with you once again. We've got so many interviews in the can. We've been working hard. We've been hustling lately and uh, a lot of help. Uh, I have to give a shout out to the one and only Mike Moran uh, from Disorderly Conduct and the Texas Hangman, who really has been a truly great friend who's Helped me get the likes of Frankie Lancaster on the show. He's helped me get Doug, Doug Basham on the show. And again, here tonight, he has helped me out getting another personality from the wrestling business on the show. And this guy, I'm telling you right now, everyone, he is a legend in the sport of professional wrestling. He has been everywhere, man, everywhere. He's been in Puerto Rico. He's been in AAA and CMWL. He's been in all Japan. He's been through the NWA, WCW, the WWF. He's been everywhere, man. He is accomplished to have a lot. Here's the one and only Ricky Santana. Ricky, how are you going? I'm doing good, mate. Thanks for the accolades, but uh, I don't know if I uh, am worthy of all that, but thank you. Thank you. You certainly are, my friend, and um, it's great to have you on the show and have the chance to talk to somebody who uh, certainly uh, had a lot of influence and did a lot of great stuff, especially in Puerto Rico, and that's one territory I haven't learned a lot about, but I'm really interested to learn about your experiences, but as we start the show, it's the same old, same old, asking everyone how they became a fan of wrestling when they were a young one. Um, the, it's kind of like a, a long story, but a, a funny one. And I believe everything happens for a reason. Um, out of New York, uh, my father took me to the garden when they had remodeled it. And I remember Bruno was on top and he was working there, uh, with uh, George Steele at the time of that match. And I remember, but looking back on it, there was, a, a another young person at that time, which was Carlos Colon who ended up, you know, the, uh, the, the head of uh, the World Wrestling Council in Puerto Rico. But with that being said, we moved to Florida and uh, got to Florida. And uh, back then we didn't have too many channels. You had CBS, NBC, ABC, and PBS, and what they called UHF, which is pretty historic cable to me. But on Sundays, they would show wrestling like on a four-hour block. Um, you'd get it from the Olympic in, in California. You would get it from Oklahoma. You would get uh, the Carolinas, which at that time was a tag team territory. And of course, my favorite championship wrestling from Florida. And I became infatuated with with all of that and listening to Gordon Soley and talk about uh, all these uh, great legends that went through that building. Um, but the one thing that really caught my eye was the fact that you had all these great amateurs. You had uh, Bob Roop, you had Danny Hodge, you had Hiro Matsuda, Masa Saido, of course, the Briscoes. So in my mind, I believe that I had to be an amateur wrestler if I wanted to be a pro wrestler. So of course, middle school, high school, some college, I I, I did amateur. <laughs> so right. I became a 
understand, you know, in other words, you know, I was a mark before I was smart. And I enjoyed all of that because I knew what made me happy. But the biggest thing I got out of that, and um, my father's no longer uh, with us, but in the summertime, he would take all the kids in the neighborhood to the Miami Beach Convention Center, which was a regular stop for Florida Championship Wrestling every Wednesday. And for me, the biggest thrill was to take my dad to that same building that he took me as a kid. So I got him a ringside ticket. I didn't tell him we were going until we got to the building. I told him we were going to go eat some seafood because he knew I was wrestling, but I was just finished up in the San Antonio territory. And I didn't tell him I was in the Florida office. And I get there and who's on the cover of the magazine? I am because I'm new to the territory. So I'm going to the ring and I, you know, I got my dad the ringside ticket and I'm, he's, he's, he's doing this. And after the show, you know, I get done and I say, hey, dad, you know, what, what were you doing? He said, well, you know, I was standing up waiting for you to come out because I could see what match you were. And the guy behind me taps me and says, hey, mister, you want to sit down? You act like your kid's going to wrestle. And he, goes, <laughs> he goes, who's that? He's on the cover of the magazine. So then he asked me for autographs. So who am I to deny them about an autograph? So for me, that was. That was a big deal. And then obviously going back to wrestling in the garden was a big deal. And being able to travel the world was a big deal. But yes, I got hooked. Uh, I went through the Malenko school. So I was taught the, the basics and the fundamentals um, of this business. And I still help train and develop talent, not only out of Malenko school, but out of off all the wild Samoans, WXW down here in uh, Mineola, Florida. So I'm giving back to the business. I just didn't fade off into the sunset. Excellent, man. Um, wow. So that's that's how you became a fan. And as you mentioned, uh, I believe, uh, is it 1982 you start training with the great Malenko? It was actually about 1980. Um, okay. Officially training, um, constantly working the shows, but I was going through everything. We would be in the, in the Tampa area, in the South Florida area, at the boys clubs and, and, and different uh, high schools and venues, you know, starting out. Uh, you know, just excited to, to, to be, to be in the ring. You know, I mean, that was my dream. And I remember telling my parents, I'm going to be a pro wrestler. And they looked at me like, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to do. Okay. Well, we'll back you 100%, but uh, not what I had envisioned, but uh, so be it. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have any stories of your first match that you ever had? Um, can't forget it. And, and I made a promise to myself um, it was a, a journeyman. Um, he was out of the, uh, the Florida office. His name was Steve Brody. I get in the ring and they do the old famous international spot. One tackle, drop down, get it again. Uh, took the tackle, gave it to him, dropped down, stood up like a deer in the headlights. Didn't know what to do, didn't know where I was at. He gave me a kick, gave me a snap mare, grabbed me in the rear chin, and he said, you forgot the spot, kid? And I said, yeah, I did. And I promised that'll never, ever, ever happen again. And that was that was my driving force to be able to to remember, you know, and, and when you're down in Mexico, they they got spot after spot after spot with every guy in every fall. And you don't see the guy for, you know, three or four weeks and they would come up and say, Hey, remember what we did there in in, in Querétaro? And you know, we started with him and Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what we're doing. Okay. And you'd have to remember. So, you know, for me, it was a lesson. And I remember um, that match, that first match, um, uh, Jimmy Lennon was the announcer. 
So I remember watching Jimmy Lennon announce from the Olympic. So I said, yes, I've arrived, <laughs> making an impact. And you what the first time. <laughs> that's still that's an incredible uh, uh, story coming full circle there. Your first match is with the guy <laughs> calling it that you'd watched on television. Uh, quite cool. Um, yes. So, you know, after your time training, you have your first match, you're starting to just get your feet wet into the business. Um, you know, tell me about how you go from starting small and then trying to get your name for yourself to get some shots working in the NWA. Uh, well, and actually, um, we had um, mutual connections that were through Malenko and everything to actually send us to be enhancement, uh, is what they call it nowadays, back then, you know, job guys, um, for WWF. Um, they would tape in Poughkeepsie. And uh, the Florida crew, as we were as we were called, we would go up there every three weeks and, and, and do the, the, the TV, you know, we got paid well. And then they keep us around sometimes to do a little bit of a looping. You know, you were, you were making your money and learning your craft. But um, at that time, uh, George Scott was the booker and everything was influxed from the Carolinas. So you had Piper, Valentine, the Briscoes, the Funks. You had all this talent. And I remember uh, I met Jerry Briscoe there and um, uh, Jerry wanted uh, to pull a, a a rib on Valentine. So me, I'm, I'm young and naive. He says, listen, kid, you know, Valentine's got that, that forearm smash. I go, yeah, yeah. He says, just say something cute to him, you know, when he's doing it. I want to see his reaction. Okay. okay. I'm in the ring and, you know, in, in Poughkeepsie, there's three flights of stairs to get to the ring because the locker rooms are downstairs. So I go up there, I'm in the match and Greg rares back and gives me that big forearm. And I just go, is that it? Oh my God. His eyes got big. He gave me about like, seemed like 10 or 15 in a row. You know, and then we went into the finish and the figure forward. Enhancement least first, you leave the talent in the ring. That's how it was. And I'm on the stairs and I can hear him coming down the stairs like, and there's the Briscoes, the Funk, Steamboat, and they're all dying. You know, they're laughing, right? I get to the bottom, and Jerry looks, and Valentine comes down there, and he goes, ah, kid, I knew you weren't that stupid. I just want to know who put you up to it. Was it the Briscoes? Was it the Funks? Was it Steamboat? Who did it? I just looked, and I said, ah, it's okay, man. No disrespect. Thank you. So Jerry pulled me aside, and he, he had actually told me that, I wasn't going to learn my craft here with all this talent that I was literally just spinning my wheels. And if that's all I wanted to do, that's all I would be. And I said, well, Jerry, I don't really know anybody. Cause back then it was, it was like the mafia, you know, everybody right, had your story. You didn't, you didn't know anybody. You weren't going anywhere. And, and, and Jerry said to me, he says, listen, Chavo Guerrero senior just took the book in San Antonio. Here's a number. You call me tomorrow at three o'clock, not 2.58, not 3.02, not 3.05, three o'clock, okay? I said, yes, sir. So, you know, we're flying home. I get home at three o'clock, right on the dot. I'm watching my watch. Boom, he picks up the phone and he goes, well, we know you can follow direction. Got a pen? Yeah, write this number down. You need to call Chavo Sr. tomorrow at four o'clock. Now remember, they're on central time and it's gonna be central time, four o'clock. So it's five o'clock your time. 
Right. Don't two minutes before, two minutes after, call. Yeah. <laughs> Just that clock. That's what I did. And, you know, they brought me out to San Antonio and uh, they were putting me under a mask because Chavo Sr. was making me uh, the hood. And I kept going, okay. And uh, I said, so what's the character's name? And he goes, the hood. I go, yeah, I know I'm working under the hood, but what's his name? <laughs> the hood. And I said, what? He goes, the name of the guy is the hood. I'm bringing in another guy from Watts's territory. You guys are going to be the hoods. Okay. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> so I, I went out to San Antonio. You know, I, I picked his brain every night learning ab about the business and why, you know, why are we doing this and why aren't we doing this with this and what. Finally, you know, he gave me the moniker of Mr. Booker. You know, every time he'd see me on the road, Mr. Booker, Mr. Booker, Mr. Booker. <laughs> So, you know, I ended up booking in different places and, you know, uh, it was all those people like him, like, you know, Dusty and Eddie and all these great minds. Yeah. You know, I, I lived with, well, actually Kevin Sullivan lived with me in Charlotte and I would pick his brain every night. So, you know, it was a lot, a lot of good um, learning lessons. So for me, I want to pass all that on because you got to keep the tradition alive. That's my thought process. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of those great minds aren't actively in the business right now, or they're not with us anymore. So it's incredibly important to be passing on that knowledge. Yes. Um, so uh, you're in Texas. Uh, I've, information tells me that uh, you became uh, Texas All-Star Tag Team Champions uh, with Tony Torres. Yeah. Uh, defeating Shawn Michaels and Paul Diamond. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that working with a a, a very young Shawn Michaels. Uh, yeah, working. You know, you knew he, he had the talent. You knew that he had the ability, and it was going there. And you know, we were in a program with him. It was every night, everywhere. And uh, what was so funny was we were in Corpus Christi, and I was new. You know, relatively to to shows. You know, in the in the business, and it's Thanksgiving. And I'm thinking, there ain't nobody coming out here for Thanksgiving. Come on, man. You know, <laughs> Thanksgiving for the boys. And I opened the door from the Stardust there in Corpus Christi, and it's packed to the rafters. They're turning away people. And I'm like, wow. Cow. Right? So we get out there, and we're getting ready to, 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 to drop the titles. But here's the funny part. The, the finish is I'm outside with Diamond, and Michaels is in there with Tony. And I'm getting ready to post uh, Diamond, but he pushes me off. I hit, he grabs the chair. We've already bumped the ref. Here it comes. He's going to hit Tony with the chair. Michaels is going to cover one, two, three. Well, back then, there was no mats on the outside. It was just concrete. And they're throwing beers and everything. So when we go to push, we both bust our ass because the floor is wet. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm late. And a fan from the first row takes his chair and he throws it into the ring. And it's spinning like a Frisbee. <laughs> it's Tony Flush. Tony thinks it's Diamond. Takes the bump. Michael's covers. Boom, boom, boom. Matches over to the back. The back park out there. And <laughs> Tony says, Paul, oh, great chair shot. It was solid, but it was square. It was a great deal. And I looked at Tony. I said, Tony, you never hit you. He goes, yes, he did. I felt it, damn it. I sold it perfect. I said, he never hit you, man. I watched it. 
Mark from the front row through the chair. <laughs> it just happened. <laughs> he just, you shouldn't be. I go, no, nah, man, I'm, I'm being honest with you. That's, that's, that's what happened. And uh, it worked out. So we're all good. <laughs> what an amazing finish that you could never, you could never write that. Um, you could never do that. <laughs> um, so uh, I want to ask you about um, after this, you go to uh, Florida. Uh, yes. And you get, I don't know if this is when you first met him, but maybe it is. I was just taking a bit of a, a stab in the dark here, but meeting one Fidel Sierra. Um, yes. Uh, tell, me about, tell me about the first time you met him. <laughs> uh, well, the, the first time, you know, you're, you're, you're in the TV and I'm in that world famous sportatorium. It's like, this is the sportatorium? You know, same thing yeah. happened to me at the jungle. Antonio, but anyway, the, the sheets on, on on the wall, and I see across there, and it says, you know, me against the Cuban assassin. You know, back then, guys had gimmicks, and they weren't, you know, they 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 weren't what they were. You know, I mean, they were just gimmick. And I get up there and get into the ring, and I look at him. Well, he doesn't look Cuban to me, you know. I'm Cuban. <laughs> and they look more like Mexican to me, right? And I always kid Fidel about the. And he ties up with me and he says, give me an arm drag. So I thinking he's Mexican. I give him a Mexican arm drag. <laughs> and I go, what the hell was that? And a boom, followed by a receipt, a snapmare, and da da da. And he was passing through. He was on his way to Japan. And uh, we go down to Miami Beach because that was Wednesday night after doing TV in the morning. And Fonzie goes up and gives me the finish. And uh, he goes, uh, Cube wants. Uh, wants me to ask you a question. I said, sure, sure. Uh, you know who Jack Briscoe is? Said, well, of course I know who Jack Briscoe is. He doesn't know who Jack Briscoe is. <laughs> he goes, so he leaves. So I get in the ring and I tie up and he goes, Fonzie, ask you the question. I go, yeah. He goes, so you know who Jack Briscoe is? I said, of course, I'm a dumbass. I know who Jack Briscoe is. He says, then give me a Jack Briscoe arm drag. <laughs> <laughs> Boom, and he goes, now nah, we can work, you know, and then, you know, form a friendship and a bond that's been over 35 years. Still talk to him every day. <laughs> uh, that's awesome, man. I definitely have a lot more questions about you two coming up later on. Um, so uh, I wanted to ask you about this because I find this interesting when I get the chance to talk to guys who started out in the early 80s um, right. uh, about the infamous WWF talent raid of, the AWA, uh, Mid-Atlantic, Georgia, and the Florida Territories. Um, that takes place in your early days in the wrestling business whilst you're working some of those territories. How, how was it from your point of view and perspective seeing this take place and how did that affect business for, for you and money that you're trying to put on the put, it, put in the bank and, and put food that you're putting on the table? Uh, well, you know, the, the boys for the boys. And back then, promoters were promoters and, and Vince had a vision and he was hell-bent on, on seeing that vision through. You know, he's, he's great about that. And if you're going to be paying this kind of money and, and, and buying out top talent, who wouldn't have gone? You know what I'm saying? I, I, don't, I don't really blame the boys. And Vince was trying to be the businessman and, and, and you see what he created. But at the same time, it allowed um, guys like myself that were coming up the opportunity to move up because the top talent 
had left and it was either you perform or you're done. So it was kind of like that, that, that measuring stick that you had to go out there every night. Um, there was no guaranteed contracts. There was, there was none of that. There was no merchandise. You had your own merchandise and you had to pay a percentage to the person who sold it because you couldn't watch it and you had to, to deliver. So I think for guys like myself that were coming up, um, that were starting out to learn their craft, it was a hidden blessing because you had to produce if you wanted to become better. And, you know, all that top talent went. I seen it leaving Florida. I seen it leaving Oregon. You know, I seen it leaving in Georgia. You know, you see it leave, but then you, I saw it coming in because it was all kind of WWF. You know, you look around that locker room and you had every guy that was in every major territory from mid-south to Florida to Georgia, like you said, from Oregon, from Calgary, from Montreal. Mm. He, he, he had his pick of the crop and he picked the best. So, you know, from a business standpoint, hats off to, 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 to Vince, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, you know, uh, otherwise, you know, I probably wouldn't have had the opportunities that arose for me to go out there and become better at what I wanted to become. Absolutely. That makes so much sense to me now that you say it, uh, you know, someone that might've been in a spot where they might've been stuck being an enhancement talent for several more years now have an opportunity to, to move up into a, a higher spot in the car to make more money. So that's pretty cool. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, uh, I wanted to ask you about this time period, obviously you're traveling along the road, uh, you know, many, many miles. Do you have any horror stories of traveling on the road near misses, scary moments? I'm sure there's a few. Well, there's a few scary, <laughs> I'll give you one. The second one's a scary one, but the first one was my first venture when I went to San Antonio. Okay. Uh, they wanted me to fly in on a Sunday. Um, Chavo says, you know, buy your plane ticket or reimburse you when you get here. And uh, we'll pick you up at the airport on Sunday. So I get in on Sunday and there's nobody there. <laughs> the only number I have is the number to the office. Nobody's in the office on a Sunday. Nobody can tell me the name of the building that they're wrestling in in San Antonio on a Sunday. And I waited and I waited and I waited. I bought a round trip ticket just in case, right? And here I am waiting, waiting, three, four, five hours go by. So finally, I just walk over. So I'll tell you how long ago it was. They had the little phones where you could call for the hotel shuttles to pick you up at the airport yeah. and everything. So I look and I see Travel Lodge, $16.95. I had $20 in my pocket. Right. Final breakfast, I'm good. Do the tax in my head. I said, okay, I can get by with 20 bucks. So I get there and I call a pickup. Next morning, I go out to the payphone. Boop, boop, boop. <laughs> call, uh, the, call the office and Chavo answers. And I said, hey, I'm here. I was here yesterday. Nobody picked me up. Oh, I say, sorry. I thought you were coming in today. I said, no. <laughs> it's okay. I sent somebody over. Where are you at? <laughs> I said, I'm at the travel lodge. And I'm broke. <laughs> <laughs> that was an experience, you know, for me. I, I got on the plane. I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have a car. I didn't know nothing. I mean, I just went out on that venture. Uh, lucky for me, um, uh, Tugboat was there in the, as, as Big Bubba in that territory. And I knew him from Malenko School in Tampa. So we kind of became roommates um, back then. But in the Oregon territory, I'm riding with Fidel. And Fidel's the kind of guy that 
talks to you, but he talks to you with his hands and tells you and touches and talking and talking. And we're driving this little Mazda RX-7 and we're coming through the mountain and, and I go, the horse. And he just keeps talking and I go, watch the horse. And watch the horse. Because I could see the horse, but he wasn't crossing the street. He was walking parallel with the line in the middle. So he was just walking straight. Yep. And the last second I yell, oh, horse. And he looks up <laughs> and we went, and it was huge. He went by because we're in that little car. You could probably see the fleas on his ass. It was so close. <laughs> and he goes, Why didn't you tell me about the horse? Like, oh, the horse. You didn't see him. He was he was always that kind of practical joker. We're up in the in the mountains going over Mount Hood in Oregon. I'm in the car with Coco Samoa's uh, nephew, Tama, and he's got a money car. And we're on the CD talking crap, you know. And here comes Fidel right up behind us because, you know, he says, Look, a Samoan drives better in the snow than you, you know, you guys from the <laughs> States. Right? Here comes Fidel and he starts pushing the car in the mountain with the snow and everything. And that poor guy got panicked and he was scared. He was scared. And I said, holy, I said, back off, Dave, back off, back off, back off, and let it go. But infamous for stuff like that, you know, uh, did some crazy stuff like that in the Carolinas. Uh, me and Kendall Wyndham coming up on the Bushwhackers. And they had the old Lincoln with the suicide doors. And we're coming back from Fayetteville, which back then was a two-lane road, no lights, just country road. I said, Kendall, there's, there's Luke and Butch. Turn off your lights, pull up right next to him, grab my ankles. I'm going to open the doors on him. So he's got my ankles. I'm having <laughs> the window. I open the doors on Luke and Butch and they're like, what? <laughs> yeah, we thought it was hysterical until uh, we did it to Ronnie Garvin, Kendall, Rick Steiner, and myself. He was riding with Fantastic And we did it up in the mountains of Pennsylvania. And Steiner opened the door on, on Ronnie, and I never seen Ronnie's face just go. Ah! And all of a sudden, we're coming around that mountain, and Ronnie's pushing us with that car. And I'm thinking, okay, we're going to die here. We're just going to die. <laughs> Finally, he let us go, and we took that that turn in the mountain. I was like, Bruh. but you know, things like that. You know, you have anytime there's ice and snow and crazy stuff like that, you just just nuts. But the boys were the boys. So it was just normal. <laughs> <laughs> See, those are the kinds of stories we love to get on the show. I love stuff like that. It really, uh, yeah, it really pops me. Um, <laughs> uh, I also wanted to know about, you know, do you have any strange stories about, you know, wrestling fans back then? I know wrestling fans could get a little bit crazy at times. Uh, any interesting stories, you know? Uh, well, I, I remember we were in, uh, in, in Puerto Rico, and uh, I was a baby face, and it was Jungle Jim Steele, um, Kenny Kendall, and myself, and we're leaving uh, a town called Louisa. And uh, uh, El Bronco, who's of Dominican descent, was there. And he was uh, saying that that was the African slave town, and the only thing whites were their eyes, and all kinds of stuff. So they got hot. And after they showed, they actually set his car on fire. Whoa. So when they on fire we're walking and we're it's me once again general jim Steele with and kenny kendall and we hear boom, 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 and they're on the ground 
And I'm still standing, and, and I go, what are you guys doing? Because she didn't hear that gunshot. I said, well, they're not shooting at us. We're baby faces. They're shooting at the heels. Come on, get up. Get dirty the car. <laughs> they're like, you're crazy. I go, well, after a while, you, you, you know the, the island, and you know the people, and it, it's all good. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> oh, man, it was a different time back then, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. The internet was uh, the information you got was from Mr. Meltzer, his weekly wrestling observer. That's how you got dirt, and most of that dirt was with the boys wanting another dirt. It wasn't really the parks, <laughs> and and some of it probably wasn't even true either. It was just uh, yeah, someone feeding him information so he'll put him over in the newsletter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I watched this earlier today. It's a match you had in 1988 against Ric Flair. Uh, yes. I think it went about 18 minutes. What a classic bout that was. Tell me about working with Flair back then. Uh, I really yeah. enjoyed that. Well, it was 18 minutes of, of, of what is shown on the YouTube and everything else, but the actual match was five out of six segments on the uh, worldwide show. When, oh, I got okay. to, when I got to Louisville um, uh, doing TV for, for the Crockett's, obviously, um, Dusty told me, he says, uh, you're working with Flair, you're working five out of the six segments, you know, which is about 40 something minutes. Okay. Right. And he says, we're doing this, we're setting it up. We're going to pay off dealing with JJ going through St. Martin, St. Croix, St. Thomas, all that. And we're pushing Sting to move in for his thing with Flair for that, for continuation off the, the class of, of the champions, you know, and I said, okay, no, no, no problem. And he says, I'm going to do, Dusty tells me he's going to do a finish that he did with a figure four and, you know, laying his shoulders down, you don't give up, you know, three. And I said, okay, yeah, no problem. So Kevin Sullivan was the assistant and he's sitting there and here comes Nate coming through the door. And Kevin goes, hey, Nate, the kid here says you can't blow him up. looked at me like, what? Yeah, he said it. He said you couldn't blow him up. And he looked at me, he goes, kid, you say that? And I go, Rick, come on. And he's, <laughs> don't be afraid now. You were talking all that shit before we got here. Well, <laughs> so, wow. Right? And I go, I didn't say anything. So I get out into the ring and I tell people all the time, Flair called the whole match inside of the ring, which is another lost art, you know. And he called everything. And, you know, he sets up, he goes, hey, uh, what do you, he's in the ring and he's telling me, What's your setup to, to come off the top? And I go, it's the flying breed. He goes, okay, give it to me and go. But I had to come clear across the ring because JJ had to pull me off of him. Right. So if you look at the tape, I, I came a long ways in the air. I'm thinking, holy shit, this guy's way out there. You know, this is what national TV taping for me. I gotta, I gotta, you know, highlight my, my skill. And, and and it put me on a bigger map scale of doing that with Flair. But then I remember he had his uh, WrestleMania uh, match with Michaels, his retirement in Orlando. So uh, I went to the hotel to give my respects to, to Flair. And I said, hey, Nate, you know, I, I want to thank you because back in 1987 in Louisville, you made this kid, you know, a household name. So I, I want to thank you for that. And he said, wait a minute, last time I checked, there was two of us in the ring. I might have made you, but you continued to make me. And I said, wow, okay. I said, because that means we can have a shot, the kamikaze for old time's sake? <laughs> Absolutely. So we went to the bar and had a shot, but that's how he was. He was just that kind of worker. And he was he was so happy when he came through that, 
He paid my bar tab. He paid my hotel. And I didn't want to take it. He didn't want to take it. And Kevin says, you're insulting the champ. So that's the last thing I want to do. I'm just trying to, you know, do my, my part here to, to make a name for myself and get to travel the world and get to work with guys like Flair, Arn, Anderson, Tully Blanchard, you know, Kevin, Rotunda, Doc. I mean, I, I, I worked with Andre. I couldn't let that go by, especially when I had that opportunity, especially working with the, you know, with the horsemen and everything. So for me, working with Flair was, was, was a turning point in my career. You know, I didn't work a long program with him, but then I always look at stuff like this. If you can go out and have one match with one guy in your career, and that's all they remember is the one match, then you've accomplished what you needed to accomplish. Yeah, because you have 50 matches and nobody remember a single one. But everybody talks to me about that one. And the one that I had with Terry Funk, which was nothing but kicking and punching when he was working his angle with flair with uh, when he uh, pod driving through the table and, right, and everything. Yeah. And you look at that match and it was just a constant fight. And that's that was Terry. Terry was whatever Terry wanted to do is how you followed it. But, you know. We didn't have that privilege of, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, because in Mexico, that's how they do everything, too, you know. But here in the States, uh, the example that I was, when we were talking, uh, myself and Alpha, was down in Puerto Rico. And Mike Moran can attest to this. Separate locker rooms. The referee brings the finishes. The referee doesn't speak English. <laughs> so you have <laughs> that's bilingual in the locker room on the heel side to give you the finish. And then you go out there and it's rock and bottle and spark plugs and dirty diapers and real, you know, I mean it's 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 like, you know, with Mike I always have the, that story and and and, and with Mike uh, he always he always bring up that story, so I'm gonna bring it up just for Mike. <laughs> I was passing through and Mike didn't know me and either did his partner when they were the Texas hangman. And I was with the giant warrior and wearing cogwas in the ring and they think, you know, I'm just another local Spanish kid, right? And his partner Bull's out there and he likes kind of selling for me. He goes, don't sell for him. He's too small. He's too small. Don't sell. Hmm, okay. I won't <laughs> say nothing. Working, working the finish was, because I was just passing through on my way to Japan, was to come off the top of the crossbody and he rolls it through. I said, okay, I'm too small, huh? I came off that top rope like a missile. I hit him so hard he couldn't he couldn't turn over. <laughs> I think you better make the save. Boom, boom, boom. So that one's for you, Mikey. Yeah, I know you love when I tell that story because I've been telling it for yeah, 25 years. But, you know, he's the one that got a hold of me to, to, to talk to you. And I love guys that that interview that that want to talk about the, you know the old school and the old times. I'm not I'm not a bitter old school guy. I just believe that that time and that fan and that era was was um, so so different to to what it is and, and i experienced the new era because you know i was an agent for wcw and an agent for wwe and you know you have to adapt and change with the styles like any sport you know yeah i love you know those stories back then and and the boys being the boys, you know, not worrying about video games or drinking protein shakes. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why I haven't really interviewed many people from today's wrestling because I just don't think they're going to have anything to talk about other than the fact they beat someone at Madden or something yeah. like that. You know what I mean? 
Um, so like all the guys from, you know, your area, you always have all these incredible stories. Uh, so that's my favorite thing to get out there. And I did want to say, uh, I loved the finish of the match with flair. You are, just the selling in your in your look in your face and your eyes as you're trying to reverse that figure four and you're almost there you've almost got it and he grabs that top rope and you yeah. can't go any further and then you just have to go back to where you were right from square one and it's too late now it's a three count i just thought that was great storytelling and just that one the little way you, the way you just described that that the, the motion and the way you were moving God rest his soul. It's the same way the dream fed it to me in the locker room. You know, you're going to be there. You're going to be in. He's going to And then, yeah, too much from the pain. And then yeah. Still keep on, kid. <laughs> All I needed. <laughs> um, so I wanted to move into 1988. You joined the World Wrestling Council. I don't know if you'd already done any shots there beforehand, um, but you're down in Puerto Rico. Yeah. Um, right. Um, you defeat Super Black Ninja, who was also known as the Great Muda, uh, yeah. and you become the WWC Puerto Rico heavyweight champion. Um, tell me about working with Muda and, and being given the top spot in that company. Uh, you know, um, I had come in off obviously off the curtails of that flare match and everything else. <clears throat> And I had met Muda and worked with him uh, in the Florida territory when he had come in and he was with Nagasaki. So I was familiar with 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 Muda's style and everything, and I wanted to learn the Japanese style. It's it's completely different than than what we know and what you know, even Puerto Rico or anybody else's style. So working with him and giving me that initial push, and then they made you know when music videos are just starting to come out for the wrestling for the boys, they made it. Um, because I'm of Cuban descent and I was coming into Puerto Rico and the video was, you know, I have a mom and dad just like you. I'm no different. Why do you call me a foreigner? I speak your language. You know, I eat the same food. You know, it was like, it was done. It was done so good and so well um, from from a booking standpoint. And the video was done from, with Hugo Savinovich, who did all that type of production and everything else. So it really got me over that, over that hump. And, and I, I worked with Muda, then I went on to a longer program with uh, with Bobby Jaggers, and then I went on to a program with Mr. Pogo. I worked those programs and I was there nine months and, and it was time for me to move on to, to go on to other things, but that's how it was back then. You know, you worked the program two, three, four months, building, 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 till you got to the blow off and then you would start a new program with somebody else. <coughs> Excuse me. So. When I was in there and, and you know working with Muda, working with Bobby Jaggers, working with Mr. Pogo, I learned a lot about getting the people to buy into you and, and getting them to actually look at you. Like you said, it was a, it was a top spot, and that's a whole different realm because now you have to produce even more because you're in that big top slot. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And. I had, I had witnessed that out in, in the Northwest, you know, winning all their titles out there. And a little fun fact, there's only two guys that have held the, the TV title, the tag title, and the Northwest title in their runs out there. And the one is Fidel Sierra and myself. 
which is which is you know ironic because you know we had a lot of tag team titles in different places together. So getting back to Puerto Rico, the fans were different. They 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 were so involved and so eager in those houses, you know, were just enormous, you know. So you would go out there and you would just want to deliver because it was there, you know. I mean, you know, you got 15, 16,000 people in a baseball stadium. You know, when you hear that horn, and when you hit somebody, you hear that, wah, wah, notorious Puerto Rico, you know. And if you were a heel, spark plugs were a common tossing denominator, you know, zing, zing. (laughs) (laughs) You just knew what you had. You know, there's a lot of stories in there where, you know, fights breaking out, them trying to get into the locker room, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, You know, I had stuff with, Hussein, we were in Bayamon and the, the projects were right behind and about six guys jumped the fence and they wanted to kill him. The guy was coming with a two by four. And I said, give me the two by four, give me the two by four. I want to beat his ass. I want to beat his ass. Give it to me, give it to me. And the fan gives me the two by four. And <sighs> I tell him, we're under the dugout as fast as you can because I'm swinging this and I don't want to hit you. But you <laughs> keep running. You keep running and don't you stop no matter what. Because if you stop, it's going to be hell out here. And those were the kind of things that it was common practice. Um, uh, Curtis Thompson, he uh, wrestled as the White Angel in Puerto Rico. First time he came in, he's the cheeky star, the biggest heel manager that they ever had, and one of the you know, greatest heels that the island has produced. And I tell him as he's going, I said, hey, you come out of the dugout, you run all the way to the third baseline. You don't stop. You don't you know, mess with the crowd because you're going to get hit. Yeah. It was riveting. So he had a white mask on. He goes out there and he starts getting everybody the finger and everything. And all of a sudden, boom. Ah, what was that? And Cheeky goes, AC Delco was laying on the ground, busted him on the side of his head, six stitches. First night in, boom. I said, bro, I told you, don't stop. Just keep <laughs> Yeah. Learn on your own. And then, you know, th- those are the kind of things that made Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, you know, because it was a truly a fan-based territory. You know, they, well, the Latins, you know, Latinos, Puerto Ricans, we get involved in hot heavy. <laughs> yeah. When when the hangman did their stuff with Invader, crazy. I mean, they, you know, they took them to the hospital. I mean, they, they believed in, in, in those in those shoot angles like that. You know, they'd sew people up in the back and they would film it. Yeah, that's just what it was, you know, it's just crazy. I got all kinds of crazy stories like that uh, from its day back in Puerto Rico, thinking, you know, business wise, how to, how to, how to draw. Uh, the one the last one that comes to mind was uh, Shane the Glamour Boy. Um, he was partners with Val Venus before they called Val Venus up, uh, and uh, they were going to send him home. But I had seen how the, the fans really liked this guy. So I told Carlos, I think we need to turn the baby face. So we turn him baby face and he's working with Dutch, I believe, uh, and uh, he gets busted open. And we're in the back and Brett Sanders goes, oh, Rick, you want to come here a second? And I go, yeah, what's up? And he goes, no, I need you to see something. So I go back and Shane's laying on the cot. And I go, what? And he goes, do you think we need to sew him up? So I don't know, let me take a look. And he pulled the towel off of his head and stream according to his heartbeat 
Oh, shit. Oh, when I put it back on, I said, don't move. So Shane's thinking I'm going to go get a paramedic. I go get the cameraman. <laughs> I go, Augie, get ready. I'll say, when I pull the towel off, it's coming. He goes, what? I go, it's coming. Okay, so he lines up, and I go, you ready? And I pull it out, and it went right into the camera, right into the lens. Boom, and it was like that. And we're on there, and then I start screaming, get a paramedic, get a doctor in here, get somebody in here, damn it, blah, 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 blah. And she goes, crazy. I thought you were somebody to help me, and you go get the director and the cameraman. So, oh, it's good for the business. It's good for the business. It's very good for the business. Yeah, absolutely. People see that, they're going to be sold. Yeah, and, and they sold it, and he drew a lot, and he's their beloved foreigner, and, and you know, the rest is, is, is history for Shane. But that night, he was he was hot. He was mad. I can't believe you did that to me. I thought we were close with that. So, buddy, it's just <laughs> so they sold you up. You're okay. Don't worry about it. It's a few stitches. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Just amazing. Um, I wanted to ask you about your time working with Ray Gonzalez as the Latin Connection. Uh, your fondest memories of working with him? Uh, we, um, I, Hugo gave me the name uh, El Nena de las Nenas, which is, you know, the young buck of the young ladies, you know, the, the <laughs> court rob is, is other words. So they, they made us a, a tag team for, for a long time. We won the Caribbean titles. We won the world tag titles. We did everything else. And then it was time for a change. So they were going to turn me heel for the first time ever. And um, we did it at TV, obviously. And, uh, you know, we did the finish and, you know, I raised his hand because there was a communication in there and everything else. And I hugged him and then I sucker punched him, threw him outside. I posted him. He got his, his, his juice rolling and then I threw him to the crowd. And I said, there's your superhero. And I'm walking straight out because my car is already outside. So I'm walking with security guards, but by the time I got outside, there was 150, 200 people pulling punches. Oh my gosh. Telling me I'm going to die, telling me I'm a piece of shit. Every insult you could name. So they put me into the TV truck. And in the TV truck, they break the windows and start rocking it. And they tell me I'm going to die. They tell me I'm going to die. So the director says, hey, I love you like a son, but I ain't dying with you. I'm walking the back of the truck. They've already called for the SWAT team. You just have to kind of wait it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I'm standing and they shoot, they can hit me. So I lay down on the floor because, you know, if you're shooting into it, they're not going to think I'm laying on the floor. So I wait and, you know, I get police escorted out and everything else. So on that Saturday, they're at the baseball stadium and I drive in through the outfield. They put the picture, you know, put the ring on top of the pictures, man. I get out of the car. I beat the shit out of Ray again. I get back in the car and we drive out and they're throwing bricks. <laughs> get in the car. Good thing it was a rental, you know, and it took out the insurance, but that's the kind of the kind of heat that was developed. And then, you know, I, I, I left and I came back and then it was time for Ray to turn into the heel that he became. And they've, I've done uh, different interviews and I thought it was the right time for Ray to turn heel because he had already reached all the plateaus that he had needed to reach as a baby face being, you know, all the way to the Universal Champion. So when they did it, you know, I already knew how to make it what it was. 
and we had that scene when we went out to visit him at his, you know, at his farmland, and he starts fighting everybody, and, and you know, that, uh, I'm the spoiled child, you know, I've been everything he does, we just wash has-beens and everything, and, you know, that got him a lot of heat, <laughs> so, you know, because you're telling Carlos Colon and Vader, myself, all these guys that have been there for a long time, they were all washed up living in the past, now he's the present, and, you know, the rest is history, and, you know, Ray turned out to be a one hell of a hero. All right. Awesome. Um, I just wanted to ask you if it's all right if I have just like a minute break. I just need to go to the toilet yeah. uh, and then I'll be yeah. back. Go ahead, my friend. Thanks, brother. Yeah. And we're back. All right. <laughs> um, so uh, <laughs> next uh, question I had um, is, look, Ricky, back in the day, you were, you know, you had the long hair, good looking. Yeah, I got <laughs> I, I, I'm the same. If I, That's why I'm wearing a bandana and a hat. Um, I want to know about, you know, female wrestling fans. Back in the day, you were a good looking guy, star on television. You know, what was it like having a bit of female attention back then? Uh, well, as the baby face, I, 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 you know, had that reputation of being the ladies man and, and all those things. And, you know, it was all part of, of the business, you know, um, as, as a baby face. And, you know, there was a lot of, no matter what territory I went into, there was, you know, there was always those guys, you know, there were the, the good looking baby faces, you know, and it wasn't something that was done intentionally or may have been from a, from a booking standpoint, because, you know, females just like males, some like blondes, some like brunettes, some like redheads, and some females like, you know, tall, some like small, some like chunky, you know, you had to have a little <laughs> bit of everything. So I, I do believe that all that was a, uh, was, you know, marketing too, uh, to, to go out there and you knew who to push as that, as that uh, young, good looking guy, you know, there was plenty there was plenty of female opportunities and you know stories that could go on forever and ever and ever <laughs> <laughs> to protect the guilty not necessarily the innocent <laughs> um i wanted to ask you about this and see if this was true norfolk mm. virginia 1991 you work a house show match against kevin nash who was known as oz at the time is that true okay uh, I don't remember it, but might have, to be quite honest. Uh, I'm not going to uh, sit there and tell you that it didn't because in 91, um, I was filtering through WCW a lot yeah. uh, because I had all my bookings in Japan and Mexico and, uh, you know, doing South Africa also and, and India tours and everything else. So might have been, uh, it might have been a one-time match. I, I can't say that I remember it. Uh, and I remember a lot of 
one-time matches that were uh, of, a, of significance for not for me uh, other than working with that talent but for other uh, people um, I had Randy Savage's first match in WWF, you know, under the enhancement. I had Bret Hart's, um, you know, those kind of things going through. Uh, first time working with Andre. I only worked with Andre once, but it was in the real world tag team tournament for the giant Baba in all yeah. Japan. You know, it was Baba and Andre's tag team partners, you know. Uh, working in those, Jumbo Saruta, you know. Mizawa. Kawada I had worked with in San Antonio and before, but, you know, Dr. Death I had worked with, uh, you know, Terry Gordy I had worked with, but uh, Kevin Nash's Oz, I, I got to be honest, I don't remember that. Really <laughs> That's <know>. fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, you know, it was, it was Kevin when he was very green and under that character as well, so he probably would like to forget it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I was going to bring up All Japan, uh, yeah. uh in 1990 you team a lot with doug Furness over there yeah. um how was the experience of going to japan at that time and please tell me if you have any stories about working with andre that time let us know <laughs> well uh andre um you know he was bigger than life he was just bigger than life um Furnace pulled the rib on me you know they're in during the introduction and blah 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 and I turn around and Furnace is out of the ring. He wants me to start. I turn back. <laughs> Who am I starting with? I'm starting with Andre, right? And Andre put his hand on my forehead and his pinky and his thumb are back here. And I'm like, he's enormous. And he just gave me that smile and welcome to Japan. And he put him <laughs> in the corner. And I was in the corner and he's doing, you know, his, his squish in the corner. And, Furnace comes in, he puts Furnace in there, he squishes and he squishes. And you know, Andre was famous for flatuating. And he had us in the corner and there and went, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> and it was like, you know, like a dead boat. <laughs> but he thought it was, he thought it was funny, you know. And I, I just kind of say, you know, if that was a one-time deal, it was, the greatest one-time deal because you know to say you've been in the ring with andre you know, to me in its day was, was just another another notch in the things that i wanted to accomplish i wanted to learn every style i wanted to work with the major companies i wanted to work with the major stars and you know yeah man that's that's huge i acquired after in the years later in my career and would have used them in the beginning Unbelievable that uh, I was naive to a lot of the things of the business as I was learning through the business of the things to do and what not to do and what to say and what not to say. And sometimes I just didn't do the right things or say the right things. And yeah, you learn from it. So, yeah, but being in there with Andre, and then the next night you're in there with Mizawa and, and Kawada, and the very next night I'm in with. Dynamite Kid and Johnny Smith, and the very next night you got Gordy and, and, and Doc, and then the next night you got Stan and, and Spivey. Oh and my then God. Later and, and just and it was it was twenty nine straight days. There was no there was no break in this in, in this tag tournament. 
but it, it, it introduced me to a level in my mind that I wanted to continue because I love that, that competitiveness and how it's back and forth. And the Japanese fans, they, they could care less about winning and losing, in my opinion. They look at it as if you gave them 110% and you gave them a good fight and a good match, they'd love you forever. But if you went out there and you were half-assed, you were done. Right. Japanese, they would test you. They'd see if you could fight back. and You know, they wouldn't try to intentionally hurt you. They just were snug. <laughs> That's a lot so it, it, was, it was a learning experience uh, for me. And um, it was one of those, one of those things that, uh, you know, you'll always remember you know, I go into Japan for the first time. And it was, it was Terry Funk that, that, that got me on that tour. So, you know, I'm grateful to the Funks, grateful to the Briscoes, the Guerreros, the Hanawadis, all these great wrestling families that yeah. I saw did that helped me out and I deal with them. And, you know, they, they became my locker room buddies. You know, still, you know, we go to the Legends reunions here in Florida every three months and, I sit there with Jerry Bisco and Steve Kern and Brian Blair and Buddy Colt and you know Bugsy and all these you know all these guys from the past. And it seems like it was only yesterday, and you're still talking about yesterday. You know, yeah, so it's, it's cool. I mean, I, I enjoy that 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 era. But yeah, getting back to Japan you know, to get off the subject, it was it was an intense tour. My my body, it was a constant work, and uh, you know. I was young and you know could bounce back. Could I do one of those tours now? Eh, I don't think so. Because <laughs> it would be hard. <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, it was definitely an experience, and, and and it was my first one, and that's what I wanted to accomplish. And, and for me, yes, I did. I got to go to Japan numerous times after that, but it was it was a good time. That's awesome, man. Um, and I and I wanted to go back to something you said about you know you meeting up with the legends once every three months talking about yes. the old days, always talking about the old days. My feeling is it's like my personal meaning of life is creating memories to reminisce about later. Um, and I, I think that's the most fun thing is talking, telling old stories with friends. Yeah. I, and, you know, we get to see them in there. Uh, as a matter of fact, the last one we just had, it was a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I was talking to Hector Guerrero, uh, you know, and, it was, you know, Eddie, when we were on the road, would, would always come home and, you know, we took him a home meal and everything else and had pictures, of, you know, with my daughters when, you know, they were three and four years old. Now they're 30 and married and everything else. But, you know, the Guerreros and I told them, I said, the Guerreros always had a special place with me with Hector and Eddie and Mondo and obviously Chavo Sr. and even Gory. I got to work in that angle with Gory in San Antonio and the Chavo Jr. So, you know, when I was the agent for the cruiserweights, I, I kept that tied in the Briscoes. Same thing. I deal with Wes's, uh, uh, Jerry's kid, you know, and, and the respect factor and, you know, the funks, you know, Terry's Terry, Dory's Dory. I see him at the reunions, you know, him and Marty, you know, and, and, and you go back and you think back. Uh, Ronnie Garvin, he, he um, spends the winters down here in Florida. He's got a place in Florida. And other than Ronnie's hair being gray, not blonde, same guy, you know. I mean, it's 
And he goes, you remember that? I go, yeah, you used to always say that. So, you know, you 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 see all that and you see these guys and you see Buddy Cole, who I watched as a kid. What a heel. He had so much heat in Florida. It was unbelievable. And for me to sit down and talk to, to, to Buddy Cole like he's my neighbor, and you can't put a price on that. And <laughs> Absolutely. Like, that's a memory that's there that you, that you put together. And, you know, you see, you know, Joe Polardi, and you see all these guys that were working in the Florida office, you know, that I seen as a, as, as a kid and got to work with them and got to be in the ring with them. Now we're sitting there over chicken wings and a beer talking about what we used to do. <laughs> but the last conversation we had was all about grandkids. It was Al Perez, Steve Kern, uh, Haku, myself, just talking about, yeah, the grandkids. You know, we have, we all have grandsons. And, you know, it's just, that's, that, that, that fraternity is so tight and it's so tight knit and people, the boys are the boys and they'll always be the boys no matter what, and they'll laugh at stuff. You know, you can be 80 or you can be 40 and be one of the boys, and you know you're one of the boys. That's amazing, bro. Um, and there's so many people that you're, you're tight with that I'd love to ask more questions about, but uh, I still want to stay focused on you. Um, <laughs> uh, 1994, you start working more with WCW. You're doing a bit in CMLL. Uh, you're doing all Japan as well. Um, I want to ask you about the, the times that you were there in WCW working with the Nasty Boys, the Armstrongs, and Stars and Stripes. Uh, the Nasties, Sags and Nobs, they're, they're, their style is their style, so you have to kind of uh, adapt to them. You know, the respect was was always there, and it's still there. You know, we, we see them at the reunions. <laughs> they show up. <laughs> And you know, knobs is knobs and, and, and sags is sags, and they don't change. The Armstrongs, every Armstrong that I've ever stepped in the ring, 100% professional in and out of the ring, just great talent. Uh, some of them underused, in, in my opinion, um, could have used them better. But hey, you know, business is business, and they were making a living, and that was the biggest thing that we were all concerned about making a living. Uh, working with that, Stars and Stripes, hey, what can you say about, you know, Mr. Bagwell and Mr. Uh, Patriot there, you know, you, they were different, they were all different styles, and then you also forget that we were married to Harlem Heat for the longest time, when they were as, 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 as green as they could come, coming straight out of, you know, the Texas and the Dallas area, and, and everything else, and, and I'll tell you a little story, which was, which was crazy, but that'll tell you the kind of relationship we had with Booker T and Stevie Ray, uh, Fidel and myself. We were at the CAC um, last year. They didn't have, because we were supposed to honor the year before. And, you know, they're honoring Harlem Heat and everything else. And, and Booker T, you know, acknowledges, he thanks, you know, uh, the people that trained him, you know, and everything else. And he said, I want to thank Ricky Santana and Fidel Sierra because they got in the ring with us every night. We didn't know nothing. We were as stiff as can be, and they never complained. They went out, they did their job, did their thing, and everybody went home. And they were honoring Michaels, and Nash and Hall and X-Pac were sitting at the other table. And Booker turned around and said, not like Nash and Hall, they never wanted to put us over. And I was like, oh. <laughs> So, you know, Stevie comes up and says basically the same thing, you know, so then 
I have a break and I go to the bathroom and I come back and a book comes out and I said, book. And he goes, what? I go, oh, you, you didn't have to do that. And he said, how long you know me? I said, a long time, book. And he says, and you know me, man, I just say what I got to say when I got to say it. Just like Stevie. And I said, yeah, well, I had to say it because it's the truth. So that's why I said it. I said, all right. So I stuck out my hand. He goes, no, nah, bro, we don't shake hands. We hug. So he gave me a hug and I went about my business. But we knew, Fidel and myself, where we're at in ourselves in that career, in that moment. You know, you're, you're starting to, yeah. and they're starting to come. And, and you have to be, you know, realistic in, in, in a business sense. You know, this business is a work. You know, it's, it, it's what they create and everything else. And it's time to pass, time to move on, trying to make people right. And, and that's what we did in those mid-90s. You know, because I knew that was coming to the end. Yeah. You know, I'm into my 40s and it's, and it's, it's time, kid. You know, you, you had your, your, your run. You got to go everywhere you wanted to go. You got to do everything you wanted to do. You know, now my only thing is to pass it on. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, and I completely understand where you're coming from. Um, uh, 95, another one that I want to ask you about. Uh, you work Hakushi on Monday Night Raw. On the 24th, yeah. you wrestle Quang. And on the 25th, you work Tatanka on Wrestling Challenge. Um, yeah. I know you're probably just popping in there for three days to um, to, yeah. to help, as, as usual. Um, but you get to work on Monday Night Raw. That's pretty cool. So what was the experience like after having been doing that in the WWF many years prior to doing it now in the mid-90s? Yeah, well... <laughs> I got a lot of heat <laughs> because Hakuchi, really? Tatanka, and Quang Savio Vega, they knew me. So they made it a competitive type oh. of thing. You got in false finishes. You know, the first night was Hakushi and I did stuff and they go, what are you doing? So I'm not doing anything. I'm following the guy's lead. I'm not doing anything, you know? <laughs> You know, I, I get I get Savio the next night and just starts giving me stuff and I'm, I'm going, no, 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 you know, because <laughs> I'm just going through, but I want to make my paydays, right? And he <laughs> heard that. I, I went up to the Tonka and I said, Chris, bro, I've gotten heat two nights in a row, man. Just, just go out, do your thing, boom, 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 and we're gone. Nah, you just follow my lead. I'll <laughs> deal with it. And he's so as I'm coming through, there's Briscoe as the agent. <laughs> I look at Jerry and I go, it ain't me, man. It's him. It's him. It ain't me. And you could tell Jerry was hot too, boy, because, you know, he had already spoken to me the night before. You know, he wasn't the agent, but he had spoken to me, right? Because I know Jerry. Tonka comes back to me and he goes, he's on me, man. I didn't do anything. I, I, I did it, so I'll take the money for it. But for me, on a personal note, for those guys to, 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 to do that and still be business, but business out of the respect factor, because mm. that's what I, I took out of a respect factor, because I, you know, I'd already, you know, at that point in time, shit, 15, 16 years in the business, you know, it was already there. And I knew, I knew what I had to do. I'm just coming through and, you know, picking up some money and on my way to Japan to pick up more money. It was a job. It was how I supported my family. That's 
that's how I looked at it. It wasn't a hobby. It wasn't something that I wanted to do or say that I wanted to do and get 900 likes on Facebook and Instagram. It was my job. And yep. that's what I did the whole time. I didn't do anything else but work. And that's how I looked at it. Like, yeah, those, those, <laughs> I remember those. Unbelievable. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, they, they had enough respect for you that they were like, no, I'm not, well, I'm not eating him up in this one. Uh, they, yeah. wanted, they wanted to give you something because they're just, just, to them, it didn't feel right to just eat you up. And I thank them. And, and I always see them when Rose joke around. I saw uh, Tonka at a, at a show that we had done, uh, Legends type of thing, and they're sitting at the table. And like, hey, remember when you were there? I told you I can't do that. And he said, we're going to do it anyway. He goes, yeah. He said, yeah. And they love the match after the facts. So don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm just trying to be business, you know. Um, so I had a few more questions about the the Barrio brothers uh, and your stint in WCW, or your, I guess you pop in, you pop out. I guess that's what's going on. Um, yeah, never really under a full time contract or anything like that. At that point, no, uh, I wasn't. It was just you know uh, a nightly deal, and yeah. it was it was it, it was good money. It was you know it, it took care of the stuff, but it was for me it was everything in between. Either I was going to Mexico, or I was going to Japan, or I was in and out because I used Puerto Rico as my hub for my base, my home. You know, I'd be going in and out, in and out, in and out. Um, you know, and that's uh, getting ready to go into uh, to work for Auto in Germany at the very end of of, of the career move, uh, which is a whole other thing that I wasn't expecting to do. But I finally, you know, I made it to Germany and working for Auto once. So yes, I <laughs> I that, that circle, you know, and was his last tag team champions, you know, which I didn't understand either. But uh, thank you. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Um, so the Barrio Brothers, uh, September of 1995 on Saturday night, you work with Sting and Luger. Any stories of working with those two that night? <laughs> uh, well, the, the Barrio Brothers, uh, at that time, Boys in the Hood was, was, was uh, the yeah. name of the movie. It was popular, right? Yeah. Well, Barrio in Spanish means the hood. That's where I come from. That's my neighborhood. And we're brothers from the hood. So we're yeah. But they think it has Barrios being a last name. <laughs> I don't know why, but that, that's, that's irrelevant. But, you know, we're, we're working with Spin and Luger. And, you know, they put us in there to, to work with those guys because obviously we could, we could work and make them look good. And, you know, and not that they needed to look good because, you know, it's Luger and Sting, but to keep them looking good, I guess you could call it. And we tried to go home like five times. Go home, go home, and they wouldn't, and they wouldn't, and they wouldn't, and they wouldn't. And we get out, and I remember, I believe it was at the MGM Studios where they were doing the TV, and we're there. And Arn Anderson comes up, he goes, guys, what are you doing? My house, man. I mean, we told them to go home five times, and they didn't go home. Luger didn't go home. Luger didn't go home. Go home. Go home. Go home. Go home. So we just kept. You know, if you don't want to go home, that's not on me. That's that's on you guys. You know, we give you the, the referee gives us the cue. You get the cue. You don't want to go home. The, maybe you should talk to them because <laughs> we're trying to go home. Believe me, we were trying to go home. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was one of those one of those things that 
you know, you could work with them and we, you know, we knew their, their spots and, their, and everything else. So it makes for easy TV when you know that you got people that can, that can just work it, you know, and we didn't lay out this big extravaganza of the match, you know, here's the beginning, here's the heat spot, here's the go home, let's go. Yeah. And everything else, between. but yeah, <laughs> it was in, when we, when we try to do business and the other team just keeps, keeps going and going and going. <laughs> I do find it uh, comical how you say that. Um, I do find it comical how you say, you know, they thought that the Barrio brothers meant that your surname was Barrio. Uh, yeah. And Barrio means hood. So technically, you're the hoods again after all these years. Uh, yeah, it was, I kind of came up with the name, kind of, you know, hidden metaphor. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about this uh, World War 3 1995 it's a three ring battle royal what did you think of all of that I thought it was crazy uh, you know I've seen two ring battle royals in my career and um, it was one of those you know one in a lifetime type of things that you, you don't see again um, but I do remember that uh, I was uh, in the ring with Eddie and I got on the top and I, I forget who I dumped out, but I told Eddie, I said, Eddie drop kicked me off the top to go to the floor. And he says, you sure, right? I said, yeah, yeah, don't, I'll be sitting up there when I dump the first guy out. Just give me it, I'll grab the rope, bounce off the apron to the floor. And it's just like, you know, cause I knew he could get up there and it looked impressive for him. And it looked impressive for me to get out that way because it was something it wasn't, it's common now. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't a, a, a common move. So, you know, we, we got to the back and he said, you okay, man? I said, yeah, yeah. I said, drop kick is perfect. I'm sitting on the top rope and he hit me here in the chest. So, wow. You know, it, was, it, was, it was just, you know, one of those things. Fortunately, camera didn't catch it because they were well, moving into the other, the main top of things. And, you know, you couldn't, uh, when yeah. I was an agent at WWE, you got with Kerwin and you made sure that I made sure that the big moves that the guys were doing weren't missed on camera. Because if you're going to sacrifice your body to take a big move, you might as well catch it. So I would say, okay, this is this, this, and this, you know, you're going to catch it, you're going to catch it. And he would know that here comes the move because I'd say, this is how they're setting it up. And, and, and that's the difference as, you know, the business evolves and as time evolves, you learned more things about how to make it bigger than life. And, and I learned that from Vince. That, that machine that he has there is bigger than life. And from a marketing standpoint, from a production standpoint, from an entertainment standpoint, hands down. Can't yeah. Catch it. Yeah. I will say with WCW, it did used to drive me crazy sometimes when the, the camera wouldn't be shooting what I'm supposed to be looking at right at that point. So yeah. <laughs> happened quite a lot. It happened a lot. So when I had the cruiser weights as an agent, I I made sure that I knew all the big moves. I made sure that they knew that in my truck because I didn't want the guys sacrificing their bodies for no apparent reason. Right. So at some point you do become an agent in WCW. Um, I see in 96, you're working worldwide, prime, nitro, dark matches, Saturday night. Um, does that all coincide with you being backstage as an agent or does that come after your in-ring? That comes after the fact. Uh, that comes after the fact. Uh, I was just, you know, going in between my tours 
and I would, you know, like I said, it was a job. It was, it was, it was, it was work. It was a business, and that's how I looked at it. So you could book me in Timbuktu, and if I could make that shot and be back for the next shot, so be it. You know, I'd get on a plane, I'd travel 16 hours, it didn't make a difference to me. It was just what I did. Um, yeah. So yeah, I was going there, then I ended up uh, being the agent um, when John Laurinaitis came in. Uh, no yeah. secret. You know, John Laurinaitis go back to 1987 when he came to Charlotte. You know, uh, talk to him on a daily basis too. You know, just as a friendship and, and, and him, uh, Fidel Sierra and, and Haku. Those are the guys I talk to on a daily basis all the time, every yeah. time. But I, I get back there and they knew because I had worked in Mexico for so long. And they said, we're going to give you the cruiserweights. He said, yes. I had the cream of the crop. Oh, absolutely. We were, we were the opening segment, and we were always the highest rated segment of the show. I would never try to change their style. I just would make sure that the finish coincided with what creative was doing. Yeah. And to make it right. And all I did was just give it feed. I'd let them, you know, create their, their, their spots or crash and burns. But I say time them. Time them so that they make sense as we're doing the crash and burn. Then just crash and burn, the crash and burn, and then all of a sudden do a small package. That didn't make sense to me. So it was that one. I had them, so I, you know, it was it was great for me. I come right. up with you know, different things, and you know, it, it was all good. And obviously, Pensacola events came in and bought them out. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I am really interested in this whole thing about working behind the scenes and i just like to ask you you know what would be the process be from you wake up in the morning as an agent in wcw you get to the show what are the things that you do one thing after another that whole day uh you with wcw a little different than events with wcw going into monday night nitro i would have the show from the writers on Friday. And I would know what match I had and where they were going, what creative and everything I had to do. Usually you'd be flying out on a Sunday, come in Sunday night, show up at the building for uh, the morning production meeting. If there were any changes to be made, they were made at that production meeting. Um, would get with the talent, depending on what time the call time was. If it was 11 or if it was one get with the talent, let them know what direction they're going. Uh, I would sit there and say, when you guys go to the ring and you're going to walk through your match, I want to make sure that we're not doing the same thing as they're doing in another match um, for spot-wise. So, yeah. you know, kind of get the idea and make sure and then get with the, the TV people and let them know that we're doing this, so please don't miss the shot because it's important to this, 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 and this. And then I'd go to the recap meeting that they were had before we go on here. And then I would sit at the gorilla position and learn the gorilla position for timing purposes and watching everything and going through. Um, a little more intense when I did it for Vince because Vince is sitting at the table and you know, Vince runs his tight chip. So it's a, right. little bit, a little bit more. And then, you know, every once in a while you'll get Stephanie to sit down and go, hey, Rick, where are we at time-wise? Because you had to write in and out. And, I said, okay, we're over by two and a half, but I, I'm going to cut it here instead of a, they need a three minute cue. I'm going to give it a minute 
you know, pick up a minute here and you pick up a minute here and then you go through. But it's a little different because sometimes um, with WWE, <clears throat> you would have to leave and we would go from the, the TV tapings and you'd have to go into Cincinnati to Heartland, uh, do talent uh, analysis, and then next day go to Louisville and do that talent analysis and then fly home and that'd be Thursday and then I'd have the house show Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And <laughs> And you had to write everything down. Vince was was very business and meticulous um, on doing things. Uh, when you're an agent and you're at the show, he wants to know what time the doors open, he wants to know the weather, how much was the advance, what did the commission take, who asked for drawings, blah, 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 blah. And then you had to report any problems and issues every night, but you were the you weren't the only one reporting. All the other agents had to do the same thing. So he would see what's going on from a different perspective from what somebody would think was a problem to if somebody was trying to cover a problem. <laughs> so it was, it was, you know, very, very business and he would expect, you know, right after the show to make that phone call, you remember, I'd have all the documentations of the house and the bills that were paid and have to let exit out. You know, it's, uh, it's a lot more than just, Hey, how are you? Yeah, I'm here today. Okay. It's a great match. Bye. Yeah. You you earn you earn your keep and, and you know he compensates you well so yes it's, it's <laughs> it comes with that with the territory but you know I, I learned so much from a business standpoint not the in wrestling business in the ring but behind from a from a corporate standard being with WCW being with WWE and, and all those things uh, the first true booking job I got was because I was an assistant out in the Oregon territory, but my first time in Puerto Rico, I remember I was in I was in Aguadilla and I watched all the matches because that's how I was trained. George Scott told me you watch first match to the last match because you don't know if you have to be in the main event or somebody missed the plane. You don't want to do the same spots that somebody's already done. You may have to work with that talent in the future. At least you have an idea of what they can do. So I go out for the first match and I come back and I'm talking to myself. I'm not talking to anybody. I'm like, oh, maybe they should have done that. I go out to the second, I go out to the third. They go to the, to the intermission after fourth and Carlos Colon comes over and goes, can I talk to you for a second? And I go, yeah. And he goes, step into the, uh, into the showers. <laughs> okay. So I let him walk first and he goes, I, I hear you critiquing every match and coming up with your own scenarios. Something else, uh, <laughs> right? And I say, well, you know, I've done just something different because it seems like we're doing the same thing over and over and it's monotonous and I don't want, I want the house to grow and not stay the same. I'm sure you do the same thing. Yeah. He goes, yeah. How would you like to take the book? Oh man. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, one condition. And he goes, What's that? And I go, It's just me and you that make changes because I know how this works. But if we can't have that relationship and communication, then I'm flattered, but I'm not interested. He says, No, it'll just be me and you. I said, Because the minute that it doesn't, I'm stepping back and, and, and moving on because I just want to make sure that we're on the same page following this. This is your company. 
These are my ideas. You could have your ideas and we can go back and forth, you know, and we'll leave it at that. So he said, yeah, no problem. And that's what it was. And then it was time for me to move on and I moved on and I kept coming back and I would take over and it would be a creative thing. It got to be a couple of us in there, you know, throwing things around. But I was notorious and probably still am for long finishes. Yeah, oops, oops, oops. And I learned that in Japan. Oops, 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 oops. Oh, didn't expect that. Oh, yeah. wow, unbelievable. That's how I like to do a finish. Just when you think it's over, it's not over. And then when you don't think it's over, it's over. And you're like, holy shit. <laughs> but you know, that for, for me from a booking perspective, not that I'm the greatest booker in the world, but that's what I saw because Eddie Graham was that way. Bill Watts was that way. Chavo Guerrero Sr. was that way. Kevin Sullivan was that way. He pulled a rib on me in, in, in Johnson City. We're supposed to have this thing and he's supposed to hit me with the golden spike, you know, and I get screwed and get covered one, two, three. I throw him outside the ring because he tells me to throw me outside the ring. He says, come on out after me. Boom, 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 boom. Throw me back in. Come back in and uh, he says, slingshot crossbody over the top into the ring. So I said, okay, I go over the top. I cover him and he holds me down. And the referee counts three. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, it's kind of keep fighting. You know, boom, 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 boom. Then, you know, he goes to pull out that spike and he goes, block it, boom. And then, you know, here comes his posse from behind. And you know, Kevin had it all laid out. I, I didn't know shit. But for me, he's holding me down. I'm trying to get off. Because <laughs> I know that <laughs> he just held me, you know. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, okay. So for me, the unexpected was the key factor for me when I was trying to book finishes that something they wouldn't see coming or something they wouldn't understand. And that's how I was, I was groomed. And that's how, you know, if I can sit there and watch and call the finish a half hour before the match even starts. I'm sure that uh, today's internet uh, smart could figure that out on his own too. Of course. It's, it's just so, so obvious and so delayed and so put out there. Yeah, it really is. It's just, uh, it's not what I remember it being anyway. Because um, <laughs> I used to remember what made me mad and what made me happy, what made me pissed, you know, I mean, what made me just go, ah, you know, I yeah. and Watts was a guy who would go off the air like Eddie Graham and we'll keep the cameras rolling. We'll see you next week. And you're like, oh, wow, next week, what do we do for next week? And then they give you a little tease and then they bring in the angle and they tease you to make you go to the house show. You know, that's, that's what I grew up with, you know, making you want to go. Mama just kind of give everything to you. You don't have to go. Anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I just miss, miss that feeling. It's, it's, it's a weird comparison to make, but after, you know, sex is over, you're like, ah, yeah. I don't get that. So, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> I want more. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, you, you, you look at those things and ah, okay, so be it. <laughs> um, when did you? When were you an agent in the WWE? Uh, Vince bought it in two thousand. I was there till two thousand and two. I was okay. an agent in the uh, end of ninety eight, beginning of ninety nine, somewhere along in there. Okay, uh, was in there. Um, 
prior to that, I had, uh, you know, booked numerous times, not only for Carlos, but for Victor Quinones' IWA. I booked in his thing with uh, him and Savio. Uh, I booked for the IWA in Japan. I booked for Wing in Japan, you know, when it come up with things like, you know, I remember for the Wing company, the media baseball and gone were asking, what is Wing? Baseball and gone and asking, what does wing mean? <laughs> what does wing mean? And I just sat and I go, okay, how about wrestling's international new generation? <laughs> hey, that's what it became. You know, and in the IWA, which they still have the logo I designed that logo for Victor and Savio Miguel. You know, things of that nature that are kind of like hidden, hidden fun facts, I like to call them. Um, you know, everybody knows that I was involved with the training of Lita. She said it in the Hall of Fame speech. You know, I, you know, recruited talent for WWE like Naomi, like Del Rio, like the original Saint Cara. You know, talent that they asked me, do I know anybody? Who can I find? Uh, Carlito, um, you know, sending him there. You know, um, and I said, well, you know, in reality, in my opinion, Eddie's probably the better worker. He's a little small right now. And then the next thing yeah. you know, Eddie and Orlando show up. And it was, you know, to see those people that, you know, I had a little bit of influence with knowing, working, and, and kind of grooming, you know, for me, that's a satisfaction. I'm not, Definitely. I look at it, the business doesn't, doesn't owe you anything. You chose to be in it, and you decided to do what you had to do, good, bad, or indifferent. And I'll never be bitter. And if I had to do it all over again, there might be some tweaks, but I'd still, you know, I'd still do it my way. Yeah. I like some <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you that the time that you're an agent in WWE, is that during the time where they do the WCW invasion? Uh, yeah, they, he had just, he had just obviously purchased it, everything else. In okay. From and, your perspective, you know, working there on the inside, surely you and a lot of people that were working in there knew that the way that this angle was playing out wasn't being done the right way, right? It wasn't. I mean, I looked at it this way. Um, and maybe I'm wrong, but uh, you could have had both companies. You could have made money with both companies and maybe once a year have a joint show. Yeah. All Japan, New Japan would do it in the Tokyo Dome. I use the example Taco Bell and Kentucky Fried Chicken in the same drive-thru. Same company owns them, two different entities. But wasn't my call. I just I, I said, you know, a lot of it will be going by the wayside. A lot of be a lot of changes. They're going to be cutting a lot of people. They brought them in as soon as the contracts are up, they'll be done. And that's what happens. That's what yeah. Happened. And, you know, you, you, you could have had it, you know, you, I, I always ask myself this question when we had the rating wars going on and 4.1 and 4.7 and this, that, and the other, now you can't even get a 1.9 rating and there's yeah. only one company TV. Yep. Where'd they all go? Where'd they all go? Yeah. Because I, I, you know, I'm in the automotive industry and I have been since I got out of wrestling. You know, as, as, as my job sake, uh, me and Halku, we worked for the same owner for the last 18 years. And it's funny because people will come up to us and 
you know, they'll remember the old days and this is the classic line we always get. No, oh, man, back when you guys did it, that shit was real. <laughs> Nothing changed except for the fact that we made you believe. We didn't slap our thighs. We didn't do that. We became faint. We did all that. But that's that that's the part that I think that it's that it's missing. It's like when you watch an old classic movie, you see the actual scene and they filmed it on location. Now they're all computer generated in the background. And what do you yes, say? Yes, I know, right? Yeah, it's like, okay, come on, man. Please give me a break, right? You see the rock jumping from building to building and it's all green screen. Yeah. No, no. Like I'd rather Indiana Jones, you know, like. Yeah. Exactly. You know, even though you know it's a prop, it just looks like it was really yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. It's like, and they used to always ask us, hey, is that fake? That reference fake. This, and I just said, let me ask you a question. What's your favorite Rocky movie? And they usually say one or two, I mean, for the most part, right? And I said, so at the end of Rocky 2, when he finally beats Apollo Creed and you left the theater, did you say, Ah, oh, that was fake shit. Yeah. No, you let going. Yes, Rocky won, right? Even though you look like a giant, Stallone's not really that tall. If you look at Apollo Creed when he played for the Raiders, look look up his pro card. He wasn't this big giant, but he looked like it compared to Rocky because of the illusion. When they're running yeah. on the beach, you never see him running actually side by side. You see him behind and you see him pass because then you would see the height differential. Yeah. You're being entertained. Wrestling used to be that male soap opera of violence. Mm -hmm. Lead the violence. We made you believe the violence because let's face it. You know, you blade a cage match. That does another thing. A cage match to me is a cage, and if ain't no juice, it's not a cage match to me. I mean, that's just my opinion. Call me old school. Call me whatever you want to call me. But what's the sense of the cage? It used to be. Two men in, one man out. Nobody can interfere. You didn't climb over the top. You had to come out the gate. So yeah. the gate was trying to fight it back. That, that that part, trying to adapt to the masses and the kids and everything. And I understand it's all marketing and merchandising. You want to generate all the I understand that. But still, still give it, give it something that you can still bring that old fan that brought their kids and they want to bring back grandpa and grandma. Let's go back. Remember when you used to take me, take me there instead of taking grandpa there and then you say, nah, nah, look at him, he's slapping his thigh. Yeah, that, that I'm not my oh no, no, Bruno wouldn't do that. You know? <laughs> and like when you know, when they're jumping off the top of the cage or top the rope, top rope to the outside, and everyone's standing there waiting to catch for 10 seconds, it's just yeah. Even yeah, like when yeah. the cruiserweights did it in WCW, it, that it wasn't so blatant where they're standing there. Someone would turn around just at the right time as Rey Mysterio would do a planter to the outside. It was always like, yeah, it'd be one, maybe two guys, not ten, not ten, <laughs> and they all go down. Of course, they all go down. Yeah, like we're doing bowling, yes. <laughs> you, you've taken away that that credibility to that old school fan that spends money. That's how I look at it. Okay, yeah, okay. So you you, you want to generate revenue? Well, yeah, 
it's still have to generate revenue, but you have to have that broad spectrum. You have to bring your kids, grandma, grandpa, next generation, next generation, future, and past generations. Yeah. We had fans in the Northwest like uh, Irene Dahl. She was out there. She's out there for 50 years. And that lady was there every Saturday night. She had her own seat and she loved the baby faces. She hated the heels and she'd let you know it. You know, it was, you would do that and you could use her. You could usually use her because I would slide out of the ring and that heel would be in there and I'd hug Irene and everything else and that heel would go nuts in the ring and she'd love it and she'd be screaming at him and everything else. And that heel would slide out like he's getting ready to hug her and she'd kind of like, back up like she's going to fight and here I come and hit him, hit him and she'd be all ecstatic and she'd come back next week. Something so simple. Yeah. And yet, I want to make it so hard, but like anything, everything evolves. Just like, uh, I'll give you an example, the NBA. The NBA, they came up with the three-point shoot so nobody drives, so you don't see anybody fighting to get inside, right? Yeah. And back in the day, you know, if you're playing against, you know, Charles Oakley with the Knicks, because I'm a Knicks fan, he beat you half. Yeah. Now, you get LeBron, the guy bats his eyelash, oh my God, it's a foul, he ripped my head off. Oh. Yeah. That's what made Michael Jordan so tough when Detroit was beating the hell out of him. Oh, bro, I know, right? Yeah, and he had to go work out because he was getting his ass handed to him. <laughs> he didn't complain, he just went to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> but... You know, like anything, well, football. Oh my God, my, I went to block the pass and I missed it. My hand hit the quarterback in the helmet. Brrr, automatic first down, 15 yards. Yeah. Terry Bradshaw gets a piece of grass stuck to his face and they're beating the hell out of him. It's just, just a different story. And, yeah. and I give Terry uh, a lot of credit. He's, when you talk about great quarterbacks, yeah, he doesn't come up, but he won four Super Bowls in six years. Pretty damn good. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from Louisiana. Yeah, okay. So anyway, that's a different topic, but that's it, it's the same analogy to me. Everything is changing, and everybody's a different, believable character. You know, you had those characters. You had like Abdullah, like Brody, like Stan Hansen. You know, they were unique to their style. Um, to me, they all look alike nowadays. They're all cookie cutters. Every female wears kick pads. You know, yeah. somebody would be different. You know, why you want to be all blue dresses? Why doesn't anybody want to be a red dress in a room full of blue dresses? That's what gets you noticed. That's what gets you a standout, something different. Yeah. Right? If they all look the same, okay, well, okay. But it's not my uh, it's not my territory to be saying, ah, I think you should do this. I don't, I don't want to become an armchair booker. <laughs> <laughs> um so we're winding down towards the end of this interview ricky oh, i want to thank you for your time uh before we get to our final segment where i do a few quick fire questions to learn a little bit about other things that you like in life uh is there anything that you would like to plug or say to your fans out there that may be watching this um the business the way it's going there's a lot of independence um, no matter where you live and whatever state you're in you know Go out and support those independents um, because future stars are breeding there. They're just waiting for their opportunity. And uh, we all have to start somewhere. It's, you know, there is a starting point and there is a finishing point, but they need your support to, to, to grow and, and fulfill their dream of you know, greatness, uh, whatever that level may be to them. So I say support the, 
the local independent wrestling promotions that you see in, in the part of the states of the world that you live in. Um, I think it's vital to the business. Absolutely. Um, so Ricky, this segment is called Five Second Frenzy. You have five seconds to answer each question. It's just to get to know a little bit more about you. And even if it takes you longer than five seconds, it's okay. Sure. Okay, first one for Five Second Frenzy. Wrestling legend, Ricky Santana, your favorite wrestler. Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes. Your favorite opponent you had over the years. Ric Flair. Nice. Uh, favorite match you ever had. One hour Broadway for the Northwest title with Rip Oliver. Nice. Um, <laughs> uh, your favorite book? <sighs> favorite book. Hmm. The Secret. Nice. Uh, your favorite TV show? Ooh. <laughs> uh, I'm a big Law and Order buff, but you know I like stuff like Married with Children. <laughs> oh, cool. uh, two half men. <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like that. I mean, yeah, but yeah, definitely. A nice. Big Law and Order. Cool. Uh, your favorite film? Ooh, Scarface. Excellent. Uh, favorite musical artist? God, I have. I, there's so many in there, whether I'm listening to classic or hip hop. You know, hip hop, I love Biggie. If you're looking to classic rock, I love Steely Dan. If you're looking to reggaeton, I like Daddy Yankee and Bad Bunny. If you're looking for salsa, I like Mark Anthony. If you're looking for jazz, I like David Sanborn. I mean, <laughs> it just goes across. <laughs> yeah, I'm that way inclined to, I like all genres. Uh but mainly hard rock music, but I do you know, appreciate rap as well. Yeah. Um, your favorite food? All. <laughs> I love sushi. I love Italian. I love Spanish. <laughs> I love Chinese. I love barbecue. <laughs> I love, there's not many type of food I don't like. Excellent. Uh, favorite place to eat on the road? Ooh. Usually buffets back then. <laughs> Whoever had a buffet, but uh, in the Northeast, it'd have to be Wawa before Wawa went nationwide because they were the only thing open after midnight. Okay. Yep. Uh, favorite alcoholic beverage? I like beer and wine. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Uh, favorite female body part? <laughs> the whole. <laughs> Uh, you know, you, if your hair, your nails, your teeth are all in line and you're pretty, and God given parts are original, or even if they're aftermarket, it's a female, you know, just, just <laughs> like Yeah, me too. Uh, and the final one for five second frenzy, Ricky Santana, is your favorite curse word. <laughs> F bombs get dropped a lot. Um, I'm trying to control that, but. In the business, when you, you know, you're, you're doing a finishing, you go into the fucking corner, you're fucking Sorry about that, but you can beat that, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> cool, bro. Well, once I wrap up the show, I do want to ask you a couple more questions. Um, sure. but I want to thank you for your time. 
Uh, I know you're a busy man doing what you're doing right now. And uh, for you to take the time to talk to little old me here in Perth, Western Australia, I really appreciate it. And I hope that you're very proud of everything that you accomplished in the wrestling business because I truly feel like you are a legend. Thank you. Thank you very much. I I appreciate that. Um, I think I've come a long way from that kid who used to make his own wrestling figures out of his G.I. Joe's as a young kid and conduct my own interviews and poems. <laughs> so yeah i've come a long way <laughs> awesome brother thank you very much i know i had a good time tonight because my face hurts from smiling so <laughs> all right opportunity to speak out and uh, you know give a little bit of insight to um, my hero you know they, they they have it and i'm saving it for my cac speech but i'm going to tell it to you um, there's different eras. There's the golden age of wrestling. There's the attitude era. There's the toothless aggression. There's the PG, the car era. Yes, I came from the car era where your guarantee was three thousand a week, and it wasn't dollars; it was miles. Yeah. I didn't have Google Maps. I had Rand McNally. We didn't have catered food at the venue. We had baloney blowouts in the car. And if I had to do it all over again, you're damn right. No oh, that's regrets. beautiful, man. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. And uh, thank you for your time again, Ricky. Yeah, I thank you for the, the time. And uh, hopefully uh, I'll see you in the future. And uh, we'll have another chat. And we'll just maybe certain territories we'll talk about, whether it was the Florida one, the Northwest, Puerto Rico, Japan, whatever. And we'll just isolate on that. instead of Yeah, that would be great. And uh, thank you everyone for watching the show here on the WCWA Network. I'm your host, California Free, alongside my new friend, Ricky Santana, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Merry Christmas.